0: Welcome to The Naked Podcaster. I'm your host, Jen Taylor, and this is Naked at Noon. I'd like to first thank NGBN Carson City TV for hosting The Naked Podcaster. Download the NGBN app. TV or mobile device and catch all the episodes of The Naked Podcaster live and on demand. If you're looking for group coaching, one-on-one NLP coaching, or you want to have a super fun speaker join your conference, head over to my website momof18.com and get in touch with me. You can sign up for a 30-minute free strategy session to determine if we are a great fit. There's also free information on my website. There's a free quiz on my landing page designed to reinvent, rediscover, or remember what gives you purpose, passion, and drive. A comprehensive how to podcast PDF on my podcast page and a free copy of my book, Hello, My Name is Warrior Princess, on my book page. So check it out at momof18.com. Today, I am super excited. I have a return guest, which is, I, I mean, every podcast episode is my favorite. But Joshua Shea is with me today. He came on a, about a year ago telling his story, and then he came on as a coach and coached me through two episodes. Joshua, how are you?
1: I am doing wonderful today, Jen. Thank you so much for having me back on your show.
0: I'm excited. I have your website up, recoveringpornaddict.com. And let's jump in first with kind of the website and what you're doing. I know a lot has changed in the last year, so we don't necessarily have to go in order, but I would like to bridge the gap between last year and this year. So you just jump in wherever you want. Okay. Well,
1: you know, we uh, last time that I talked to you, I had uh, just done my second book, I think we talked before the uh, pandemic all went down a couple of yes. months earlier. And uh, one of the things that was very interesting was the first few months of it, March, April, May. Um, I, Since I am a porn addiction expert, since I do coach porn addicts, I always have to kind of stay on top of what's happening in the industry. And it's interesting, as a former addict, I don't wanna look at the stuff, but I still have to know what's happening and there was a huge seismic shift in the online pornography landscape early in 2020 because of the pandemic and it was so fascinating to me and to people who I talked to when I would do interviews that I talked to my publisher and they agreed that it would be a great idea to um, write a book about it. So we put out a book looking at the first three months of the pandemic called Porn in the Pandemic. And it takes a look at how everything changed. That came out in, I think it was July or August. Um, that did very well. And then I spent a lot of last year, you know, not being able to go out and give presentations, not being able to yeah. go to libraries or churches, which is unfortunate. Uh, although I, I did get to to do a TED talk, which was great. Uh, But I, uh, I had a lot of time on my hands, so I decided to become a certified betrayal trauma coach. And if you remember, my second book was designed for the partners of porn addicts. And that book has still sold 10 times what my first and third book has done. And I still get emails almost every day about it. So I I feel a certain closeness to the partners, almost always women who are trying to navigate this world of porn addiction in their husbands or boyfriends or or other partners. And uh, I decided to go ahead and do the hard work and do the studying and do the, you know, learn the ropes of coaching and now I, do a lot of betrayal trauma coaching with partners who uh are just trying to navigate and just trying to figure out uh the issues behind their partner's infidelity, uh whether that's actually a sex addiction, whether it's a porn addiction. If there wasn't infidelity, but there is porn addiction, I work with them on that too. And that's been amazingly rewarding for me so far.
0: So big changes. I know when we worked together um, on the coaching episodes, I was the, I was the spouse or the per the other person or, and so I'm not surprised from that perspective that that's taken off so much. I, I kind of right. wish it would be great if, um, there was more, I guess, actual uh, addicts that were, um, coming to you. What's your thought on that? How are you, what do you think on well- that?
1: I, until I was largely forced into rehab by my family, um, after losing uh, my job and my world being rocked, I, I was not going to admit I was an addict. It took me probably 10 days at rehab to accept that I was an addict. Um, and right. that was 24, that was 24 seven, very intense, uh, work that I did. Uh, I I understand why addicts don't want to admit it. I understand why addicts think that they are different. You never want to be the one who has that problem you've always heard of. That's somebody else. That's not me. I can control my problems. And that's true with all addicts, regardless of what your addiction is. Uh, But what you see with the partners is you see a much uh, quicker urge to help, a much quicker urge to get better. Because with sex and porn addiction it hits partners unlike any other addiction if your husband you find out he's a heroin addict you're not wondering if you didn't do enough in the marriage if yeah. you find that your boyfriend is a gambling addict you're not wondering if you're pretty enough or you're not good enough in bed well That's what happens to sex and porn addicts partners, is that especially if they don't understand how addiction works, they see it as their partner choosing another woman or choosing a woman that they find on the pages of a magazine or the um, video of a computer screen as a better choice for a Mm -hmm. partner than they are, which is which is totally uh, incorrect. I understand why they feel that way and it's a horrible thing to feel but that's not something that uh, spouses and partners of other addicts tend to feel it's kind of just uh, it's just native to sex and porn addiction so you know and, and I feel horrible also because I know that I put my wife in that situation back seven years ago when it came out that I was a porn addict but um you know you think about it these are people who never wanted anything except to love their partner and then they find out their partner has this dark secret it brings up thoughts of well what else does he have for dark secrets Mm -hmm. who is this guy i don't i don't even know who i married at this point and i've been married to him for 10 years 20 years so you can understand why it really rocks their world and i think what i bring to the table as a coach um, is that not only do I have the expertise behind understanding betrayal trauma, uh, you know, getting, getting the academic and scientific part of it, but I have the experience of also being a porn addict. And I can speak the porn addict's language. And for a lot of people, a lot of therapists who may be addiction specialists, but don't have the experience, you know, there, there is something to be said for having experience. There is something to be said for having been there. And I find that with a lot of my clients, they really like the fact that I can a lot of times translate what their partner is saying.
0: I love in our first interview, you talked about um, how everything came to a head from the chat room and you went to jail. Now, was it the first book that you wrote while you were in jail?
1: i wrote my first book which was a memoir called the addiction nobody will talk about when i was in jail that's important to remember that you know i had from the day i was arrested to the day i went to jail i had two years to work on my recovery so when i finally went to jail two years after being arrested i was in the best shape of my life physically mentally emotionally because i did the hard work the guy who went to jail was not the guy who got arrested so when i got to jail instead of learning how to play cards or watching every superhero movie ever made i had decided at that point that i was going to try to give back i was going to try to make a connection with only porn addicts at that point but i just i had already decided that so i wrote my first draft in jail and i wrote it with those little miniature golf pencils because they don't give you regular size pencils or pens in jail. I wrote them with those little miniature golf pencils into about five composition notebooks.
0: I love that you pointed out that from the time of the arrest until the time you actually went to jail was two years, and you had done a lot of work. And I, I stand corrected on something I said earlier when I said I'm surprised it's more of the spouses or partners than it is the person with the addiction, because you're right, it does take sometimes nearly you know, like jail or an, like an act of God, yeah. merely to get someone to admit that there's a problem. And there's a, d- there is a different stipulation on sex addiction as opposed to others. You're right. You feel like it, it's your fault or it has something to do with you. And I agree. I wouldn't think it was my fault. Any of the other ad- addictions, I wouldn't think had anything to do with me. So you write your first one and you get out of jail. You've been, and correct me if I'm going to fr- phrase this wrong, clean and sober for seven years now
1: it will be seven years on april 1st
0: okay so almost almost seven years and uh stayed married
1: yes yes she uh she was wonderful through it she understood that i had we did not know i had a porn addiction at first we thought the porn use was just a poor choice uh born out of my alcoholism But it wasn't until I went to rehab for my alcoholism and I wasn't there four weeks like you see in the movies, I was there ten weeks. And the last few weeks I worked with a certified sex addiction therapist who introduced me to the term porn addiction. And that's when we went on the deep dive in that. Um, And my wife, you know, understands addiction. She understood what was going on. She knew that I was a sick person, not an evil person. And, and stuck by me now. I know if I hadn't done the hard work of recovery, she would have left. I know if she hadn't seen me improve as a human being, she would have left, but it was too important to me not to lose my wife and kids, uh, mm-hmm. far more important than any alcohol or porn. So I, I I did the hard work and she stayed by and our marriage today is is stronger than it ever has been. And I think we actually, enjoy each other's company far more now than we ever have
0: well I mean for me just thinking uh, if I were in the same situation it probably felt like having you back again
1: yeah yeah yeah. although because alcohol was involved so absolutely absolutely and she she really you know would get angry with me because I would do stupid stuff like drink and drive Um, And it was not, you know, I I, I didn't care about her opinions on it um, or I cared, but I cared about having the alcohol and behind everybody else's back, the porn. I cared more about those taking care of the storm that was going on in my head than I cared about anybody's opinions. It was the only porn and alcohol were the only two things that my diseased brain thought could make me feel better.
0: I love how you phrase things, and for people out there that are either um, in the throes of their own addiction or you're a partner of someone that has an addiction, your language uh, speaks to that, so I appreciate that. I want to talk about a little bit about, and I know we did this on the first time, but the stays that you had in rehabilitation, because you didn't just do one for four weeks like they show on TV, like you said. Can you dive a little bit deeper into that? I think that's a great kind of jumping
1: yeah, off point a, 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 absolutely um i went into rehab uh, uh on april 1st 2014 um that's why i consider that my sober date and because i drank on the plane the entire way out to palm springs uh, and uh i i thought that i could fake my way through it but Thankfully, at about day 10, everything clicked and I realized, oh, my goodness, I am exactly the person they're talking about here. Uh, I'm not above this. I'm not different. I am, in fact, an addict. And, you know, like I said, it took 240 hours for me to straight through for me to accept that. So it, uh, it's understandable why someone going one hour a week to therapy is not enough. Um so anyway, um, I worked on my alcoholism. I just simply worked on feeling better, um, exercising, eating better, being around a new group of people who I had never met before. And I, um, I, I ultimately uh, came back home feeling like a very, very different person and feeling like a much better person. But I came back somebody understanding that he had a pretty strong porn addiction. So I went to the bookstore and I went online and there was very little for people like me to understand it. Um, I found some academic studies and I am the kind of geek who likes academic studies, but most people uh, are not and i i said to myself because as you know i was a journalist for about 20 25 years i decided that you know what i can do is i can take the knowledge that i pull out of these journals and these academic texts and i can take my story uh my experience and blend them together and hopefully tell a story that reflects both addicts and uh people who aren't addicts who want to learn more about it so i came out of i came out of rehab did a lot of intense therapy two mm-hmm. sessions a week two hours a week um dealing mostly with the repressed childhood memories that were surfacing in rehab as they put me through the modalities uh, so a lot of dealing with that a lot of figuring out why i was an alcoholic and why i was a porn addict what caused that when i was little like most people who are addicts it was uh trauma that i hadn't dealt with that was unresolved as a result of abuse as a kid which is you know very common story when it comes to addicts Um, and excuse me about a year after a year as i'm going through this therapy at home uh, we decided that it probably made sense for me to go to texas to a rehabilitation center that uh focused on sex and pornography um so i went there i was that was 2015 i was there for seven weeks that was hugely transformative that helped really uh, add a lot of details to what i learned at the first rehab Um, and then i came home and it was another seven months of doing hard recovery work before i was eventually sentenced and i ended up serving six months uh, six months and six days exactly. I got out on my my wife's birthday, uh, and when I put out that first book, I spent the next year, you know, polishing it. Put out the first book. Expected a lot of feedback from addicts, and I did get it. I I started my website RecoveringPornAddict.com, and I expected a lot of uh, addicts to ask me for help or just to want me to hear their stories and whatnot. And I got probably seventy percent messages from partners, and from the girlfriends, and from the wives, and even from uh, from from others, and you know mothers, mothers, sisters, brothers, and I ended up realizing that this was the community to go through to get to the addict, because these are people most people can't lean on an addict, and an addict still has to. Uh, make the decision for themselves that they are going to get better but um, the people closest to the addict can often lean on them can often even you know somewhat force them to get some help or to get into a situation that's more conducive to help so I recognize that my next book should be geared towards the partners I worked with a licensed marriage and family therapist named Tony Overbay and we created a book called He's a Porn Addict, Now What? An expert and a former addict to answer your questions. Um, We came together because he has dealt with hundreds if not thousands of men and women who are porn addicts or their partners. He's done group marriage counseling with these people. He has seen every possible story, but he's never lived it. And he was talking to me about how he still gets people who yell that at them in a moment of frustration that you don't know you've never been there well i have been there and i can answer that so we wrote a very simple q a book to help women um, who are either have a suspicion that their partner is a porn addict or who have just discovered that he's a porn addict trying to learn how to navigate and like I said, that's been a huge seller through Amazon. And it's uh, it's it's really what I've pointed my life towards, because I think I can help more people, both partners and addicts, go in this direction.
0: I read that book. It was excellent, I have to say, excellent. And I, when we did our two coaching interviews, it was uh, we, you, and I talked a lot about past relationships, not my current relationship, to help me understand it and where my values li- lied. And so, people, I'll we'll put all of those in the description, also uh, the past episodes, because people can see you live and in person. Doing and coaching episodes uh, or sessions, I should say, with me, and they were it was phenomenal. the book was phenomenal. And is that the one that you said is the best selling, better than any of yes. the others? Yeah. Yes, easily. It's, it's incredible. So times
1: the amount. And it still pops up on some of the Amazon bestseller lists, depending on mm-hmm. uh, who, you know who, who's buying or what you know media outlet I was just recently on, and I I get so much feedback from that, how much it helped people and you know, for all of the pain I put people through during my addictions, for all the mistakes I made, you know, I'm just hoping that when my time comes that I helped more people than I hurt and I can rationalize to myself that in the end that means that my life was a net good and I figure I did so much I did so much damage the first half of my life, this second half is going to make up for it
0: you also like you said you were a journalist for 25 years before and you lived in a small town in maine so everybody knew what was going on if i'm remembering correctly oh yeah, yeah absolutely
1: when when i was arrested my wife picked me up at the sheriff's office and we drove home and i uh we found a tv news van in front of our house that's how small news you know small town maine this is is that it was a big news story that we had to deal with for several days because i was the at that point the publisher of a uh, big deal magazine in the area i had just finished a term on the city council of the third largest city in maine which again this does not mean much in in, in you know, most of america as far as size goes but i was well known in my community. And that's uh, that's you know something that you have to deal with when something like this happens. And I was at first a little bit angry that I felt like I was being singled out by the local media because they wouldn't do this to a person who was you know unknown, you know, somebody who was a plumber or somebody who was you know a crossing guard or something like that. But it happened to me. But it took me a little while to recognize, you know, this gives me at least a little platform. From which to start talking to people and uh you know for the last four years i haven't stopped
0: talking to people and i'll
1: keep talking to anybody who will listen
0: how did you address that when the news i mean that must have been completely overwhelming because the arrest was a surprise for you too it's not like you were trying right it was a very unique situation that you can explain again if you want to here but it was a very different situation and very unexpected did you it would have been a great place to start your platform for sure if you had had any hindsight to it. So how did right. how did you guys address that?
1: Um, it's something that you really can't address. It just happens. It's surreal yeah. when it's happening. It doesn't feel real when you see yourself on television um, for having done these kinds of things, or you're the top story in the uh, in the newspaper. Um, you know, six columns across the top front page. It's like, wow, this is, it, it's its surreal. It doesn't feel real. Um, the night that I was arrested, there were a couple times during the day that news newsband showed up. Um, the night that I was arrested, um, which, which I'll get into in a sec, um, we had to actually uh, run from our living room a couple times. And one time we ran to our bedroom and you know the, the TV uh, it was I think the CBS affiliate so we got into our bedroom it was around 10 o'clock time for the 10 o'clock news so they start doing a live remote on the news and we realized we left our dog in the other room and I'm looking on TV and I see someone in my front yard you know talking to the news camera and over her shoulder is my dog barking through our window and I'm standing in my, and I'm standing in my bedroom. And it's like, this is some weird stuff. This, I mean, how, you, you can't process that. I look back now and I I try not to laugh or I try not to uh, minimize it, but it's just so out of what you could think of. And it's so, if this was part of a movie, you wouldn't believe it. It's not believable. But in the moment when it's happening, you know, my wife and I just looked at each other like, oh my goodness, this This is otherworldly almost. And you know what, I do want to mention that this all did happen because my addiction rose to the point that um, I moved away from just looking at videos online and I went into chat rooms. Uh, My addiction was about control. It was about, you know, having control in my life. And at that point I felt like I was losing control. So I would go into chat rooms and I would try to control the women that I would talk to um and unfortunate and, and this did include pushing them to do sexual things and at one point in november 2013 i made the horrible mistake of speaking with a teenage girl who did uh engage in sexual behavior um, and unfortunately a few months later the police showed up and when i had my interview with them uh, it surprised me what they had to say but they laid out the proof in front of me and i couldn't lie about it and i i I did it and it's a horrible thing it's a heinous thing it's cheating on my wife and it's not just heinous that i did it because she's a teenager i did this to people who were in their 20s and 30s as well i spent about three four months doing this to people and you know i try not to minimize i try not to rationalize i deserve to go to jail i did it It was a horrible thing. I was a very sick person at the time, but I don't blame my addiction. I blame the fact that about six months earlier, I pulled myself off of my bipolar medication because I was trying to. Add some more hours to my day. I was trying to tap into some creative side of myself to try to save my magazine business, which was showing signs of faltering. So I knew I had a mental health issue. I've known I've had a mental health issue since I've been in my early 20s. I made the decision to ignore my medication and that's what caused me to go down that road So I'm not one of these people who blames the addiction. I'm not one of these people who says I didn't know better I believe most addicts do know better even in their addiction um, I did not know she was underage, but that doesn't matter. I know that there were women who look 26 that are 16 and vice versa um, but you know the one thing I do want to say is also that if i can get to this place anybody can get to this place for 99% of my addictive years i never went into a chat room but this is what happened when i got there so if you're sitting there listening to me or or thinking to yourself well this guy's really bad thank god i'm not that bad you can get that bad if anybody if i can get that bad anybody can
0: well uh, of course and i'm glad that you made the point cuz i was going to that and and you're right it's i'm not trying to justify anything but You can't change the fact that the women were in those rooms, whether they were underage or not, they were showing up um, and that, they were lying about their age, too. And you you took the fall for the parts that you had no control over. But I love how honest and raw you are i
1: I I, 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 I I did, but, and, you know, obviously, if I ever saw somebody who looked like a child pop up on the screen, I went right past them. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, you know, you've had more kids than, you know, most states have population, um, <laughs> you know. You, you know you know that a, a 16, 17-year-old can look 26 or 27 and vice-versa. Yep. And the thing was, the one thing I will say about the addiction is that I was drinking so much, I was getting so little sleep, uh, you know, my world was swirling down the drain. And um, I think that the way that I let myself live, that my understanding of cause and effect, of consequences got very blurred. Because that was the kind of thing that even a year earlier, I don't think I could have engaged in. I look back at it now and think, who was that guy? Because that's such a, a, a dumb thing to do. That's such a heinous thing to do um, on so many levels that I just, that, that guy that guy was very, very sick. Um, and uh, had the police not shown up, I don't know what would have happened to me. I, mean, I told you this in the last time we, we talked. You know i only give even odds that i'd be able to be here talking to you now because i think i was starting to go down a road that you don't turn back from
0: i love that you talk about it that way and now you were a journalist before and yep. so you have um written contributed to articles for other places, that's no surprise. And you became a public speaker. Let's talk about the things that have happened in the last year, other than the pandemic, but including the pandemic, because that, I wouldn't have, I mean, I didn't even occur to me that that would have changed things, but of course it would have changed things, right?
1: Well, and the biggest thing it changed, I believe that much like, you know, we're starting to learn what 2025 20, years of exposure to pornography means through the internet to pornography users I believe 2020 is going to be seen as the real starting point of a different kind of pornography addiction and that's the addiction to making pornography uh, when I when I did the research for my book I talked to a lot of these young women and young men who moved over to becoming cam stars, who moved over to a website called OnlyFans. And over a million people did this in 2020. They started making pornography and selling it online. And in interviewing these people, what I learned is that a lot of them do like the money. A lot of them are there for the money, but a lot of them really like the adoration. I spoke with a, a girl or I say a young woman who talked about how she couldn't get a boyfriend in real life, but now she had men from all over the world asking her marriage. You know, I had guys who talked about how they couldn't get a girl to look at them. And now they're saying just how wonderful they are. And you know, when, when this happens, um, this is not about the money. This is about the high. This is about the attention. This is about what they are getting. And that's dopamine. That's exactly what uh, people are getting on the other side of it. And I think that 20 years from now, we may be talking about 45, 50-year-old people who are still making pornography online, not for the money, But for the rush, for the dopamine, for the high. Maybe they'll be making a tenth of what they're making now. But I think that there is going to be another side to this that we didn't see in the 80s or 90s or even zeros or tens because there were, you know, people didn't think about that as a way to make money. Now it is a way to make money and people are still flocking to it. um, And I fear what the long term effects of that are going to be
0: i is this because did this shift happen because people were quarantined and they could do video right easily? well think
1: of,
0: think about it. who are
1: our service workers who were put out of work the the waiters the waitresses the hostesses the bartenders these are all young people these are all for the most part probably good-looking people who are somewhat gregarious and can hold conversations with people um, also keep in mind that these 20 year olds 25 year olds have grown up with the internet they don't know a world before it. so right. their taboos and right. their stigmas towards sex towards sexuality towards nudity are much lower than those of us who grew up prior to the internet and I think that you know being in high you know high schoolers now 16, 17 years old, you're almost expected to have, Pictures of yourself in a bikini or just your swimsuit on Instagram. And you know, we didn't have that when I was in high school. Nobody saw each other, you know, half naked. But it's a common thing now. So, what is—is is it a big leap between standing there in your bikini and taking off the bikini top? For a lot of people, it's not. And for a lot of them, when they can suddenly charge ten dollars to do that, and there are. Yeah. 50 guys in the world who are willing to pay $10. Well, there you have five, $500 for two minutes of work. When the quarantine gets lifted, why are you going back to McDonald's? Why are you going back to the gap? When you can work an hour a day and make fantastic money, why are you going to go back to that? And that's that's, that's what happened in 2020. That's why you still see signs everywhere. In the service industry of people being, you know, wanting to be hired, it's because somewhere between, and this is just OnlyFans, somewhere between 1 million and 1.2 million people joined OnlyFans in 2020. That doesn't include all the people who joined the many, many cam sites out there and started making pornography that way. Um, it's like I said, uh, obviously, viewing pornography went up in 2020 as people were locked down but I really fear that the legacy of the pandemic is the other side of the pornography addiction coin. And it's going to actually be the cons- not the consumers, but the producers.
0: I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine and she, about prostitution and how, like I'm in Nevada and there are not in our county, but in counties near us, prostitution's legal and how that bothered me. And she said, have you ever had sex in your past that wasn't that great and i said sure and she said well at least you would have gotten money for it and that's kind of the attitude you're talking about like if you're kind of doing some of this stuff anyway at least you're getting paid for it and i mean there was a part of me that was like wow i can see that point but that doesn't mean that i want to do it
1: right well it's impossible for me to tell a young mother of two trying to pay her rent and keep her kids fed that you shouldn't show your breasts online to make sure your kids are okay you know that's while, while I would never while I would never hope that for my kids while I would you know hope that you know I would never have to do something like that and obviously I probably wouldn't make six dollars
0: um,
1: I, I I understand why it seems like a viable alternative for many people um, and i always when i'm doing my education and you know this about me i try not to moralize everybody can make their own value decisions everybody can make their own moral decisions and ethical decisions based on you know what they what they were raised with and what they have developed Um, it's just important that we understand it's out there and it's happening so we can make informed decisions of how to act next
0: you mentioned when you when we were emailing you were like you know you have daughters in this age group. What if they're making porn behind your back? And I mean, I thought I, they're all adults, all but I have an 11 year old and then everyone else is an adult. And I thought, well, I mean, that's totally possible. And it's that same thing, not moralizing it. Do I want them to do it? Absolutely not. There's nothing about it that I want any of my kids to be involved in. Uh, but it it's so difficult. I can see how difficult it is for people, like you said, the single mom who needs to feed her kids. I mean, I was the single mom at at one point working three jobs and didn't do any of these things. Not that it was viable at at that time period to the internet, but whether it was or not isn't the point. I worked three jobs not to do it. And yeah, I can understand how it's a lot less time and effort, a lot more money, and I can have a lot more time with my kids and not stress about getting them shoes. So how awful is it right now that this is such a viable way for people to make money you know
1: well that that's and that's the world that we find ourselves in and I believe we find ourselves in it because we are more of an unhealthy sexual society than we'd like to admit when people ask me are you anti porn I say no I am anti unhealthy sexuality I know that there are plenty of people who can look at pornography and not develop addictive tendencies Um, But I think that I don't know for all of them that it is considered healthy sexuality I've talked with many couples who say that they enjoy watching Pornography and it spices up their marriage and it's used as a marital aid I don't I don't doubt them at all about that but I also know that when you introduce pornography to your marriage that you are three times more likely to end up divorced so it's really on the individual to decide what is healthy sexuality and what is unhealthy sexuality. But if they don't know there were even those things, well, that's what I see my job is out there is to let people know, you know, make think about your decisions. Think about talking to your kids about porn. Think about how you consume pornography. Think about your attitudes towards it um and, and i'm not saying you have to stop looking i'm not saying that you have to change your life i'm not saying you have a problem i'm just saying that much like so many other things in this world that we do know can have a negative side it's time to recognize pornography can it's time to recognize that as part of unhealthy sexuality that we are in this society Are moving towards more unhealthy sexuality and I think that is because of the internet I think that is because of the prevalence of porn I mean everybody every 12 year old kid has an iPhone now and that's the greatest porn computer ever created and we need to as parents and as a society start taking this seriously and develop a strategy for uh, dealing with pornography with our youth. I'm sorry, it's you know 2021. That's what we have to do, and maybe we didn't have to do that in 1983. But times change, and this is where this is where we are now.
0: Oh my gosh! I I mean, I graduated high school in 1988. I had no clue. I had no clue at all what was out there. We didn't have access to it the same way. You had to go in the back room of the VHS rental shop in right, the private right. room, and. Y- like, I had no idea anything about it until I was probably, I never even saw anything that was porn related until I was about 20 or 21. So it's a completely different world now. Now my 11 year old on YouTube, she's on my YouTube channel. So I can see the history of everything that's ever that's ever been searched on there and why can she do that because i know it's okay anything that i've searched on there she can see but we have to right. keep tabs on everything now and it's as a right. parent that's exhausting it's exhausting to keep tabs on it
1: well and, and when parents come and tell me that oh don't worry we have filters in place you know they have a filter on their phone it's a, well congratulations for locking down one smartphone out of the 4.8 billion in the world um but when we think about our children, you know, with, with boys, the average boy sees porn for the first time now at about 10 years old. Uh-huh. The average boy starts watching porn regularly around 12, 13 years old. Um, and what we have to recognize as parents is that those filters are in place to make us feel better, not to keep the kids away from porn, because it's not a matter of if the kids are going to see porn, it's a matter of when. You know, when your kid is at the bus stop and his friend holds up his phone and there's the latest garbage from Pornhub or goes over to a a cousin's house or something and they've got a tablet and they found something in a Google search. uh, What is your kid going to say? What is your kid going to do? If you don't know those answers, you have not properly addressed pornography with your kids. Just simply. Putting a black bar across it is not a way of handling it.
0: Oh, I I know for a fact that a couple of my kids, the first exposure they had was someone showing them.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that, I mean, that was, that was mine too. My older cousin, when I was 12 years old, mm -hmm. um, showed me a couple of hardcore pornography magazines and I was hooked from that day forward. Now, had it, had it been a year later, I probably still would be hooked, but, It came from somebody else. It came from an older cousin who claimed he stole the magazines from a store because, again, that's what you had to do when you were our age. Yeah, I can only I can only imagine being an 11 or 12 year old boy now having gone through what I went through and as somebody who utilized porn as a coping mechanism, having access to it like the 12 and 13 year old boys do now. Um, It's it's scary to me to think about if we don't start addressing this with them, what's going to happen in 10, 20, 30, 40 years. How unhealthy does our society get at that point?
0: The dopamine that you talk about, I I totally get that. Um, The girl who can't get a boyfriend and now has marriage proposals or that whole thing. At what point does that end? I mean, never, it never ends. They always get dopamine or they do more to get the same amount of that rush.
1: If you're searching for what that, it can rush, give
0: you, yeah, you know your if phone. If you're searching draining. for the
1: rush, yeah, exactly. And 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 you know, uh, I think I shared this on your first show, but I'll share it again for the people who haven't heard it. If you want to experience addiction uh, tomorrow, take your take your iPhone, take your uh, uh, Android, turn up all of the alerts turn up the volume all Uh. the way every chime ding whatever you however you can hear anything turn it all the way up then take a post-it note and slap it right across the face of the phone so you can't see anything then put that phone next to you if you're like the vast majority of people out there within 10 or 15 minutes or maybe within two minutes there's going to be some kind of alert maybe somebody liked a facebook photo maybe you got a text A few more minutes later, there's going to be another alert and then another alert. Mm -hmm. And I've talked with people who have tried this experiment. They usually last at a maximum two hours or they last six or seven alerts because you need to know what's under that that post-it note. You need to know what's on that screen. You need to know who's trying to get in touch with you. What little bit of attention are they playing to you? did or paying to you did they like something of yours do they have an important message oh my god did somebody die is there an emergency well Jen you you remember growing up as I did where you had a corded phone on the wall yeah no answering machine, no answering machine and if somebody died and they tried to reach you and you weren't home they just had to call back later but we live in a society that needs its fix of information especially when it comes to you know our egos and and our individual lives and and that feeling that people get six seven dings in it's strong it's really really strong and i urge people to try this um that feeling of i've got to look at my phone i've got to look at my phone that's what addiction feels like Mm -hmm. only about 50 times worse and for people like you were asking um, you flood your dopamine receptors, you, uh, you fry them essentially. So you need even more of the, the substance that you're addicted to, to feel that same rush. People make the mistake of addiction, of thinking that people like me who were who alcoholics or who were porn addicts or, or any kind of thing, that we are looking for a bigger high and a bigger high. We're not looking for a bigger high. We're looking for the same high that we got the first time it's just really hard to get this is the alcoholic who moves from beer to wine to the hard stuff this gambling addict that starts with twenty dollars a hand of blackjack then fifty then a hundred you need to get more intense you need to get more extreme um, with your uh drug of choice or your behavior of choice because that's the only thing that gets through to your pleasure centers and it's it's dopamine it's serotonin it's oxytocin it's, it's actually a lot of different chemicals right and you're just trying to stimulate them but you can't stimulate them like you did in the past um so you have to intensify it some people will get to a point where they will switch addictions but that really isn't very much that doesn't do very much and what happens is you continue to just go down the road to keep escalating and then you hit rock bottom and rock bottom it can people think rock bottom is one event and for some people it is obviously me getting arrested was certainly a rock bottom for me but rock bottom can take years and what happens with addiction is you only end up in one of five places often A couple of them at the same time you lose your family and friends you lose your job you end up in financial dire straits you end up in legal trouble or you end up in mental and physical uh, danger or harm and once you are there once there is rock bottom you have two choices and it is either an early grave or recovery and thank God that I went the recovery route and thank God those people who try at least try to go to the recovery route, do it because we lose too many people to addiction every year.
0: I want to wrap up. We have about 15 minutes left because I am so proud of you and I'm so excited. You're a certified low flame coach. You're welcome. You're a certified betrayal trauma coach. You were a presenter at an international conference on addict research and therapy in October of 2020. And you did a TEDx talk in December of 2020. So let's talk about what you're doing or what you've done in the last year and then of course how people can find you
1: yeah well it's it's interesting from the time that it was announced that i would be doing a ted talk everything kind of exploded on me um i i don't remember if i contacted you or you contacted me initially to do your show but about Two years ago, I was contacting anybody I could find, even if they only had five listeners to go on their podcast and try to talk to them. Now, two years later, I don't really ask to go on many people's podcasts at all, um, if, if ever. And. I am the one who's approached and I'm now, I now have to sadly turn down some of these ones I was begging to be on before. But this is great because it means more people want to talk about this. It means more people want this to come out into the open, that it's a conversation we need to have because far more people look at porn than they want to admit um you know that's part of the problem with with dealing with pornography addiction is you have to talk about pornography and everybody still likes to pretend it's the other guy who looks it's that pervert who looks when statistics say that under 50 years old you're talking about 75 percent of men while you're talking under 50 years old it's almost half of women look at pornography at least once a month so it's it's actually more normal more average to look at porn then not. That's where we are these days. And uh, with those numbers still increasing, with the uh, uh, pandemic happening, um, I couldn't just sit here and wait to uh, go back out there and try something new. So I started doing the learning with the, with the betrayal trauma coaching, and I've been doing that for a few months now. Um, when I shot the TED Talk, everything exploded even more and i was getting i've been getting you know requests to collaborate on work to you know appear on a. I i could do three podcasts a day if i if i wanted to uh, and sometimes i try and that last podcast is never good um so i have to do two um but uh, it's just the the interest has exploded The the TED Talk as of today has not come out yet. I expect it to come out either sometime in February or probably the first half of March. I can only imagine what's gonna happen then, Um, but this is fantastic because it it gives me a platform. It's an expanding platform. It's a growing platform. Um, Right now, I'm talking to a bunch of people in Nevada. The only thing I know about Nevada is Las Vegas. Um, And I know that makes me a hick like everybody else in the country, Um, but, that's all I know and you've given me this amazing opportunity to talk to the good people of Nevada hopefully somebody who needs some help is hearing this today Uh, and I'm just gonna keep doing this I don't care if the crowd is ten people I don't care if the crowd is a thousand people Uh, this I, I don't know what it's like to be called to God I don't really know what it's like to have a calling but something inside of me says, this is what I'm supposed to be doing now. I'm supposed to be out there helping people, whether it's coaching, whether it's lecturing, presenting, just get out there, share the facts, share my story, and hopefully things will fall into place.
0: I contacted you and I remember it specifically because you sent me an email back and you said, the Naked Podcaster interviews a former porn addict. That sounds perfect. You know, like you made, you were really funny about it. And I was like, yes, he's so funny. I almost didn't reach out to you just because of the name of my podcast and whether or not uh, you would want to. And then I thought, yeah, if you don't want to, you don't want to, it's no big deal. Right. And I have loved what you're doing. What was the, the TED Talk like for you, the experience like for you?
1: Uh, It it was amazing creating it Because I'm the kind of uh, person who's like, oh, I've given 5,000 speeches I'll just get 15 minutes and I'll go up there and I'll wing it Um, I actually ended up having a a speech coach who Uh helped me for four or five months Helped me create it because what I found was like I go on shows like yours and I'm given an hour on some shows I'm given more sometimes we focus on one thing or another so I probably have six or seven hours of really good material to share with people and much like a stand-up comic I can go from town to town or in this case podcast to podcast doing whatever that audience wants to hear but I ended up with this 15-minute TED talk and I imagine that's like the comedian getting five minutes on the tonight show what are you supposed to do for that five minutes and that was my tough problem is what am i supposed to do with these 15 minutes i know so much i want to share so much that it was really about cutting things down and figuring out who the audience would probably be and what would be the best points for them to hear so we talked a little bit about uh you know having your kids be addicted we talk a little bit about the addict brain i talk a little bit about uh the fact that you know here i am a white collar guy wife kids. I own two companies i was a local politician i i can be an addict so anybody can i i really tried to hit on the high points um it was a little bit weird because i went down i live in maine i went down to hartford connecticut to film it we filmed it at a tv studio because we couldn't have an audience um the audience was probably about 15 people everybody was allowed to bring one person i brought my daughter and uh that was a little bit strange standing on a stage and delivering a speech in a studio to about 15 people but everybody said that it went very well Um, everybody seemed to like it the people who watched live streaming i got a lot of great feedback from them Um, and now it's just a matter of it eventually going online and once it does we'll see if it disappears within a day or two or if it becomes one of those crazy viral things i don't know what's going to happen i, I will let everybody know and people can go to my website at recoveringpornaddict.com or you follow me on twitter or instagram which is p addict recovery um, and and you'll know when it comes out but i'm just i'm just trying to communicate i'm just trying to get it out there i still make next to no money on this i make a little bit on the books i make a tiny little bit on the coaching Uh, but this is what it feels like I am drawn to in life. Now, this is the important thing for me.
0: You mentioned that most of the people that come to you are the partners of let's talk about who your ideal client is and the best way people can find you. I know you have the website, you have Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm guessing the contact form through the website would be the easiest, but tell, tell me who your ideal clients are for coaching
1: well obviously anybody who is open to the coaching is great a lot of times what happens is that i meet with a woman who has a partner that is addicted and she and i will have a couple sessions um, and they go well and then she wants me to suddenly meet her her partner and i have to warn them that okay you are open to this they are not you felt like i've made a lot of connections that makes sense they may not And you have to kind of warn them that uh, the magic I worked with you, well, this guy, keep in mind, he's an addict too. He probably knows all the tricks. Um, And I said, I'll have conversations with them. And that's that's the best I can do. Somebody who is open to the process is great. Um, A lot of women find they're shocked when they confront their partner about their porn addiction. And probably a good 25 to 35% immediately admit it and they're so happy that it's out there they immediately start to seek help because their dark secret is now no longer on their shoulders and they are thrilled to go get help and thrilled to seek help so i always tell the partners uh, of porn addicts you know do do confront in the right way and i can teach you the right way um, don't hold back because this is not something you want to let gnaw at you. This is not a resentment you want to hold inside of you. You do want to bring it up because sometimes you'll have absolutely wonderful results.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, the, the best client is the one who uh, who is open to the process and uh, who, who pays the fee.
0: I love it. Josh, thank you so much for being on again. It was great to catch up. You've had a thank lot you, of changes. Jen.
1: Yeah. I think so that this, fun. I think you are the first media outlet that I've been on four times.
0: <laughs> well, you had to coach me twice, two of those. So. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and that was fun. That was, that was great. It, fun. Was, I enjoyed it, was,
0: that. A, it was the most nerve wracking coaching that I've had. And I've, I've done probably 25 of them. And that one was the most nerve wracking because I had no idea what we were going to uncover no idea but it was a lot of fun you're you're very very easy to work with from a client perspective so um it was really an honor to be able to do that with you thank you so much
1: and thank you so much you know whenever you whenever you need me i'm here i am always willing to share my story
0: thank you